Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bella, And I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. Russian athletes have dominated the Winter Olympiads, but this year, the ever-formidable Russian Olympic team banned from the 2018 Winter Games in South Korea because of prior systemic doping. Today, the U.N. ambassador said it's an open question whether the United States will participate in the Winter Olympics in South Korea. Is it an open question? Is that now in doubt? An Olympic first tonight for North and South Korea. They'll play together. A united women's hockey team. The The 23rd Winter Olympics is about to open in Pyeongchang, South Korea. And given the tensions in that peninsula, the event has something of a Cold War feel to it. Our first story takes us back to 1980. It was tough times for the United States. The Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan, and the United States was in the dying days of the Carter presidency. But the Winter Olympics at Lake Placid are about to serve up an unexpected sporting victory against the Soviets, which gives American morale a much-needed shot in the arm. No wonder it got called the miracle on ice. The United States, in many respects at that time, you know, felt paralyzed on the world stage. This is Don Abelson, professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario. Jimmy Carter, who was president from 1977 to 1980, often talked about a crisis in confidence that Americans had lost faith in government, that they had lost faith in the ability of the United States to project power abroad. Throughout the Cold War, sports had become a proxy for political antagonism between East and West. But the American ice hockey team at the Winter Olympics was an unlikely group of national heroes. And this team of 20 college students came together under the leadership of the legendary college coach Herb Brooks from the University of Minnesota. And these were, you know, kids drawn mainly from, you know, Minnesota and and throughout Massachusetts, primarily in the Boston area. And these college students were facing the most fearsome ice hockey team in the world. And the Soviet Union had won the Olympic gold medal in hockey in 1964, 68, 72, and 76. Not surprisingly, were heavily favored to take the gold again in 1980. Yeah, didn't they have some awesome nickname like the Big Red Machine or oh, they, something they, like they, that? They were the Big Red Machine. and They and were the Big Red Machine. Now, I understand that uh, the first game that the United States played, which ended in a tie, the stadium was only half full. I, I didn't think it was half full. Yet... When they faced off against the Soviet Union several games later, it was packed to the gills and the fans were shouting USA, USA, even before the game started. Oh, people went crazy. So you're absolutely right. When when the games began, 
You know, the first game that the U.S. played in their pool was against Sweden, and it was very, very late in the third period that they were able to tie it up and ended up being 2-2. Then they went on and they played Czechoslovakia, which was really ranked seed, uh, ranked second uh, in the uh, in, in the pool. They defeated the Czechs seven to two or seven to three. It was a fantastic team, and then they went on to beat the Romanians, the, you know, the West Germans and the Norwegians before getting to the Soviets. So every time they they were able to 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 win a game, the media focus became more intense. Politicians right. began to to focus more on what was happening in Lake Placid. So not surprisingly, by the time they entered the first medal game. Uh, again, or the medal round uh, against the Soviet Union, there was this frenzy around the American team. And as Al Michaels of ABC News at the time, and he was one of the key broadcasters along with the legendary uh, uh, Montreal Canadiens goaltender Ken Dryden said, you know, most of the people in this arena, most of the people in this country might not know the difference between a blue line and a closed line, but they do understand the significance of this contest. <laughs> and and he was right. It wasn't about hockey. It was about what a potential victory represented. But in a match that was increasingly cast as an episode in the Cold War, the American college students kept their cool on the ice. For the players, it was about a hockey game. It was a sport they loved. It was It was something they felt passionate about. And yes, they were going up against, you know, a team that had won, you know, four previous gold medals. And yes, they thought, you know, staring across the ice that these were many of the players that they had admired for years. But, you know, I think they were able to keep focused on on what was important. And although other people wanted to draw them into this Cold War arena, uh, although, although they wanted them to, to take on a role that they weren't comfortable with, they were able to remain focused on the issue at hand, and that was to play a sport that they loved. The American team had a strong leader in their inspirational coach, Herb Brooks. Brooks had spent time in the USSR watching their game, and he understood just what it would take to win against the Soviets. Certainly in the Olympics, when you were playing against all of these European teams, particularly the Soviets, the emphasis had to be on skating, it had to be on speed, it had to be on passing. It really had to be executed with what he regarded as surgical precision and get the players to think less about themselves individually and more as as a team. And it worked. It's akin to you know, a college football team beating the Green Bay Packers. That's what they did. Even the Soviet players were able to acknowledge that something quite incredible had happened. When the Soviets saw the Americans celebrating, and it's that famous photo of, you know, sticks and gloves in the air and helmets coming off and players on the ice hugging each other and crying and looking up, you know, really to the heavens, just you wondering how, how is it that this happened? that many of the Soviet players, you know, looked at the Americans and thought, we have lost that feeling. And and look at how the Americans are celebrating. Look at what this means to them. Perhaps it didn't mean as much to us. Before long, Don Abelson says that the miracle on ice was being used by Americans who were desperate for a much-needed national victory. 
the media certainly embraced it. Policymakers did. You know, President Carter uh, was among the first people to call, you know, Herb Brooks and the team to congratulate them. Later on, Ronald Reagan would, you know, tap into the victory as a, you know, as as a way of promoting American values and and our ideology and and political system over that of the Soviets. So it became far more than a hockey game uh, in the ensuing years. But there's no question that even today, when people watch footage of that game uh, and what it represented, it really sends a chill down their spine. It was a, a magical moment, and which helped not only bring hockey onto the, uh, onto the radar in the United States, but I think played a very important role in boosting the spirits of a nation that was suffering terribly. For the rest of the hour today on Backstory, we're going to be marking the upcoming Winter Olympics with a look back on the history of Americans competing on the world stage and what those competitions have meant to the people back home. We've got stories about the first American woman to throw the shot put on foreign shores, about the famous Black Power salute on the Olympic victory stand in 1968, and about the tectonic geopolitical shift that was triggered by a game of, yeah, ping pong. But first, we're going to dial the clock back to the years before the American Revolution. As you can imagine, this was a time before American athletes competed as Americans. But sports were already an important feature of social life. And the category of sports encompassed a surprisingly wide range of activity. All sorts of competitions, you know, in the colonial period, there's a reference to sport being, you know, a question of whether a man can smoke a hundred pipes uh, in the course of a day, which you know, a man does in a Philadelphia tavern and then promptly dies before he can, he can walk out. This is Kenneth Cohen, a historian of sports at St. Mary's College of Maryland. Ken told me that when it came to the things that we would more easily recognize as sports today, like horse racing or cockfighting, there were representative competitions going back as early as the 1720s when counties would go up against counties or one colony would challenge the other. And so I asked him if the revolution ushered in a new period when Americans competed in sports as Americans. Well, I don't know that the revolution actually sort of sparked national or international competition in some way. That's still a a long way off. But the revolution does uh, sort of impinge on sport because uh, the Continental Congress and a number of state legislatures ban a wide range of the sort of best known and most organized uh, sporting activities in the period, claiming that these are a waste of resources, a waste of time, that they are an immoral distraction from the sort of pure cause of liberty. So after the revolution, uh, it kind of goes through the crucible of saying, hey, not now, we're fighting a war, (laughs) we're creating a nation. Uh, But then the sports reassert themselves. What does that look like, Ken? Yeah, and so that is actually in many ways more discursive or or sort of in the uh, language than it is in the actual act of participating in sports. And ah, so uh-huh. even through the revolutionary period, you find newspaper articles that sort of reference, uh, you know, British imperial politics as a as a horse race in which the the factions that support America, you know, are presented as sort of 
horses named Liberty uh, or, uh, you know, names that, that Americans would sort of identify with. And then uh-huh. there are the factions that oppose Americans, which are presented with horses with horrible names like Changeling. You don't know what they're going to become and what they're going to do to you. And <laughs> the Americans really do use sport as a metaphor, even though the actual activities uh, are banned and and to some extent become less frequent during the revolutionary period. And this then carries through to the post-war period. And really begins to flourish when America fights Britain again in the War of 1812. The the best example of this is a great uh, political cartoon that shows James Madison boxing George IV. And George IV is punched in the nose and he's actually streaming blood out of his nose in the cartoon. And, you know, Madison is sort of saying, ha ha, you know, you're you're overweight and out of shape and can't handle this fight. And I'm sure it doesn't say, and I'm five foot three and weigh 105 pounds, right? <laughs> right. And you're in an entirely different weight class. So <laughs> Since in all sorts of ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was not the most pugilistic of our presidents, I wouldn't think. So you have all this kind of uh, metaphorical use of sport. Uh, does the reality of sport begin to catch up with this as the country sort of regains its balance uh, after the War of 1812? Yeah. So, I mean, it takes a while. Uh, These bans get lifted as America is reaching or enjoying an economic boom that does allow uh, wealthier Americans to begin to fund and finance and organize larger scale sporting events. And it's uh, the, the moral critique against these activities certainly continues, but it gets less traction. People sort of look around and they say, well, we're doing fine. We can afford to do these kinds of things now. Uh, And so you really see a takeoff in these sort of regional representative events in terms of uh, a series of north and south horse races starting in the 1820s, which get the most press and attract probably the largest crowds of any sporting events before the Civil War. Uh, These are sort of presented as, as sectional and regional events. It seems like a, a kind of a dangerous way to array competition at a time when the real competition of uh, between slavery and free labor and the Republicans and the Democrats, whatever, is is brewing. Yeah, I think it could have been, but uh, but the way that sport is constructed by the folks who are funding these events really sort of bridges that gap, and sport becomes a, a place where Americans can play out these tensions in a somewhat safer space, a safer way. Ah. Uh, and, and so the northern elite and the southern elite are both using these events to sort of rally support behind them within their regions uh, in a very subtle, very political way, yet... It's important to recognize, having said that there's not a whole lot of differences between the way the Northerners and Southerners approach these kinds of sporting events and the way they organize them, there is a difference in the way they execute them. And so the races in particular reflect uh, one of those primary differences, right, which is the labor system, where Southerners primarily employ uh, African-American slaves to ride their horses, and Northerners primarily, but not exclusively, uh, employ uh, generally Irishmen uh, to ride their horses, which of course really reflects that labor divide, uh, but does so in a way, again, that's trying to rally uh, the sort of general population behind their leaders and representatives from their region. So uh, by the 1830s, 40s, the United States has sort of recovered its sporting mojo, and sports are, especially horse racing, uh, seem to be quite common. In other venues, the United States is eager to project itself onto the world stage. Does the same thing happen in sport? Yeah, I think all of this uh, you know, overall economic growth that we talked about in the first half of the 19th century has America sort of feeling its oats, right? 
you know, whether you're talking about theater and the search for a great American drama or whether you're talking about uh, sporting events and trying to uh, prove to the world that America is a mature and and competitive country on the on the global scene, uh, you do find, a, uh, you know, nationalism sort of sparking a greater conversation. And so uh, by the time you get to the 1840s and 1850s, Americans are trying to stage and challenge largely England to a, a range of sporting competitions. The the first notable one of these is the America's Cup, the sailing competition that still exists today. Um, but, you know, shortly on the heels of that, you have a chess prodigy, Paul Morphy from New Orleans, uh, who goes over to England and uh, basically beats all the individual national champions around Europe who are willing to face him. And so he comes back sort of hailed as a world champion who's, you know, uh, sort of placed America on the global sporting stage. Now, I can't help but notice as a historian of the Civil War that a lot of this really seems to be picking up in the 1850s. Uh, is there anything to be made of the fact that the United States is projecting itself as a unified nation abroad at the same time it's kind of coming apart at the seams at home? Yeah, I mean, for the same reason that we talk about uh, so many of the regional and local events uh, being staged in a way that sort of tries to tie local populations to local leaders or regional right. populations to regional leaders, you know, these representational sporting events, there's always a certain element of promoting domestic unity in one's own backyard as much as there is projecting some sort of identity or superiority against your opponent. Uh, and so that's certainly true in the 1850s and 1860s. There's a great quote from a newspaper covering Paul Morphy's chess tour. And when he comes back home, there's this great celebration. The newspaper says, I'm going to quote here, uh, they have come with fraternal impulses from the hills of New England, the rich regions of the Middle States, the flowery prairies of the illimitable West, and from my own golden and sunny section where the blue waves of the Gulf of Mexico swell up a constant choral symphony with the music of our national union. They come together as strangers, but they have met as brothers and friends. And so all of these supporters of chess from all corners of the country come together to support Paul Murphy, our national champion, which sort of speaks to our roots as a, as a unified country. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. And so you can really see this being spun in a way to try to represent the fact that sporting culture does bridge these sectional divides. And it's a way in which leaders in both regions try to hold the people pieces together uh, over the course of the long sectional fission that, that ultimately results in the Civil War. Ken, thanks so much for explaining this uh, complicated story to us. Thanks for having me. Kenneth Cohen is a history professor at St. Mary's College of Maryland. He's the author of They Will Have Their Game, Sporting Culture and the Making of the Early American Republic. Our next story has to do with the sport that I recently learned was America's most popular spectator sport of the 1870s and 1880s. Brian, any guesses as to what that sport might be? Oh, come on, Ed. This is, this is first of all, out of my century. Um, I'm going with horse racing. Okay. And what's your logic on that? 
Uh, there were a lot of horses back then. We hadn't invented the car. I don't okay, know. Okay, that's a very presentistic perspective. So let me give you some hints. Uh, this was a sport that involved competitions lasting several days on end. It was so taxing, in fact, that many of the athletes who participated in it died young. Wow. Would you like to refine your answer? So taxing. Well, that rules out golf. <laughs> you know, I'm going to forget curling, too. You better tell me what it is. Competitive walking. <laughs> oh, come you on. You laugh. No, and it was perhaps you would laugh less if you knew it was called pedestrianism. <laughs> and the most popular version of the sport, competitors would walk on an indoor track for six days straight. Oh, my God. Historian Matthew Algio told me about the huge numbers of people packing into arenas to watch the walking matches. Most of the big races took place at Madison Square Garden, the first Madison Square Garden in New York. And because the race was continuous, uh, people were coming and going all day, day and night. And so total attendance for the week might be, you know, 100,000 or more. These races were so popular that kids would imitate the walks of their favorite pedestrians. One of the most famous walkers was Edward Payson Weston. He was known for walking with exaggerated swinging hips, wearing flashy outfits, and carrying a gold-tipped cane. Now, he made a name for himself by walking up and down and around the East Coast. But in 1875, he lost a big race out in Chicago. And that's when Weston decided to take his act overseas. He sailed to London to challenge William Perkins, the champion pedestrian of Britain, to a 24-hour race. Now, the British really considered themselves the, the originators of the sport of pedestrianism. There had been a Scottish guy named Captain Barclay who'd famously walked a 1,000 miles, uh, one mile every hour for a 1,000 consecutive hours, something like 41 days. Wow. Uh, th this was in 1809. <laughs> you know, it's many years later, but the Brits still considered themselves uh, the inventors of the game, so to speak. And, and they were very suspicious of Weston. Uh, for one thing, they, they didn't believe some of the records that he had claimed to set, walking 100 miles in 24 hours, for instance. Uh, they just thought maybe these were outright fabrications or, you know, there could be a problem measuring distance or time, that sort of thing. And also, uh, Weston got on their nerves because he kind of embodied everything that the Brits kind of hated about Americans. He was flashy. He was cocky. Uh, he would, uh, you know, play the cornet while he walked, and uh, <laughs> he was kind of like the Muhammad Ali of his era, very kind of divisive <laughs> figure. He would uh, really play it up to the crowd, ham it up, and uh, again, this was really kind of not considered uh, sportsmanlike by the Brits, and so it sort of uh, further added fuel to the fire of uh, anti-Western sentiment. And the, the British were also suspicious of sort of American stamina and athleticism in general, right? Yeah, there was an article in The, the Lancet, uh, which is a medical journal, a scientific journal, still published today, uh, just before uh, the uh, first Western race in London. And I'm, I'm just going to read here. Uh, the journal said uh, American athletes were far beyond other nations in their hygienic unwholesomeness, living habitually in their close stove-heated rooms, bolting their food at railway speed, year by year, Americans grow thinner, lighter, and shorter lived. <laughs> wow. So uh, I don't think the thinner part really applies anymore today, but we do <laughs> probably still eat uh, too quickly. But definitely, I mean, and The Lancet, I mean, that's a fairly respected uh, medical journal, even in 1876. And uh, they were pretty unequivocal that uh, 
Americans um, were inferior in many ways, especially at athletics. So Weston's bringing quite a heavy burden, not only of uh, his fancy uh, clothing and gold tip cane, but also of suspicion that the United yeah. States never really would produce great athletes. So he shows up there, 1876, challenges the English champion pedestrian, and then what happens? Well, uh, this is a match. It was a 24-hour race, and uh, the long and the short of it is uh, Weston won. He defeated Perkins. Perkins quit after just 65 miles. Uh, Weston went on to walk 109 miles. Uh, it was said uh, uh, Perkins' feet were so blistered and he was so footsore that it was uh, literally impossible for him to keep walking. And so this really stunned the British. Um, they were kind of flabbergasted, really. Uh, not only that Weston had won, but that he had won so decisively. And did this change their mind? After this, did they kind of slap aside their heads and say, oh, we were so mistaken. Americans, in fact, are wonderful natural athletes, which I think Americans today would believe that there's something about our landscape, the vast open spaces, the the kind of the shoulder room right. that would actually make us more athletic. Was pedestrianism a turning point in that, you think? It was a little bit, actually, because uh, after Weston uh, had his very successful series of exhibitions in London, one of the newspapers uh, came out and uh, basically apologized and said, uh, it's true that uh, Mr. Weston is no chicken. And uh, it, it was interesting to see this um, gradual changing of attitudes. Uh, I think uh, Weston had a lot to do with that. Uh, he proved Americans could compete on the international stage. Did people in the States show as much interest in the Weston Perkins race as the Brits did? Yes, they did. Um, the first uh, transatlantic cable had been laid uh, I think it was about 10 years before. And uh, newspapers would uh, would print extra editions or have big chalkboards out front that they would do, you know, lap-by-lap updates of, of where the competitors stood in uh, international athletic contests that you could follow in real time uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, you know, I supposedly am a historian of 19th century America, and I, I must admit, Matthew, this is the first that I've ever heard of this. Uh, why is that? How has this fallen out of our uh, consciousness if it was so popular? A couple things. Um, one, it was hurt by gambling scandals. Hmm. There was also a doping scandal. Weston, when he was in London, uh, was found to be chewing uh, coca leaves during a race, and uh, he just insisted this was on doctor's orders. It was not meant to give him any advantage, of course. Um, but there were uh, reports that other, other racers uh, were using strychnine to stay awake. Um, and so it became kind of a, uh, almost a public health issue. There was a backlash. Uh, ministers began uh, sermonizing against pedestrianism. They thought it was uh, excessive and abusive to the competitors. Uh, but the real answer to your question is that uh, in the mid-1880s, around 1885, a uh, British guy, uh, John Starley was his name, he invented the first safety bicycle, the bicycle we still use today. And these were fun to race for six days. And almost overnight, six-day bicycle racing uh, replaced pedestrianism as the most popular endurance sport. You know, I say uh, pedestrianism was NASCAR at four miles an hour, 
Uh, <laughs> well, with the six-day bicycle race with NASCAR now, it was up to 15, 20 miles an hour, and you could have crashes. It was much more fun to watch, especially the fifth or sixth day when everybody was so out of their mind with sleep deprivation. <laughs> Matthew Algio is the author of Pedestrianism, When Watching People Walk Was America's Favorite Spectator Sport. Matthew spoke to us from his home in Mongolia. In the early 1920s, American women were coming into their own. They won their long battle for the right to vote, and more women were going to college. A booming economy meant new employment opportunities. Flappers were pushing the boundaries of female sexuality. American women were making great strides, but not in sports. In 1922, a small group of female track and field athletes set out to change that. Despite inadequate training and a lack of national support, a team of 15 women sailed to France to participate in the first international track meet for women. Former Backstory producer Kelly Jones has the story. At 21, Lucille Godbold stood just over six feet tall. I think she probably looked more like her father than she looked like her mother. This is Jane Tuttle, a librarian at Columbia College in South Carolina. Lucille Godbold wasn't especially beautiful by 1920s standards, but that didn't matter. She had a wicked arm. At a, a track meet in her senior year, she broke the American record for the shot put. And so... She was invited in May to take part in the tryouts for the first international track meet for women that was going to Paris in August. That track meet was a scheme designed by the French to establish women's track and field as an official Olympic event. In the early 20s, there were no standard Olympic sports for women. Some years there would be golf or tennis. Others, there might be swimming or archery. There weren't any track and field events. At home, the American Physical Education Association, the APEA, discouraged women from track and field because they believed that lots of running and jumping could knock women's reproductive systems out of whack, making them unable to fulfill their primary social role as mothers. Competitive sports were thought to be too intense for educated ladies. They thought emotionally it was very tough on women to lose. And if you were in the elite of society who were actually going to college, track and field was not something that you needed to, to get involved in. But Dr. Harry Eaton Stewart, an American physiotherapist, didn't buy those claims. He wanted to prove the APEA wrong. He asked for help from a group called the Amateur Athletic Union, who governed sports outside of schools, but they refused him. So he held his own tryouts, and his athletes organized bake sales to fund the trip. On August 1st, 1922, Lucille Godbold and 14 other women set sail for Paris. This is Lucille talking about the meet. Just before it began, each team marched around the field with one member carrying her nation's flag. I was chosen to carry Old Glory, and believe me, I was proud to lead that American team around the track. Five teams competed that day. Great Britain, France, Czechoslovakia, Switzerland, and the American underdogs. Though the other teams had all competed internationally before, the women on the U.S. team had hardly any practice competing at home. In front of a crowd of 20,000 people, Lucille Godbold earned six medals in seven events, 
and set a new world record in shot put, unseating the French champion. She says, the announcer took me around and introduced me to all those thousands of people in French. He might have been cussing me out for all I know, but as everybody clapped, I reckon it was all okay. I can see those Americans yelling now. They opened their mouths so wide, I was scared to death for fear the sun would warp their ribs or blister their tonsils. The U.S. team came in second overall, losing only to Great Britain. The team's successes should have convinced the APEA that women could achieve more than society had planned for them, and that women could handle competition. But actually went in the opposite direction. The physical education directors sort of dug in their heels even more. A lot of high schools and colleges suspended their track and field programs, and they sort of set out to put an end to track and field. The team's successes in Paris did prove their point to the AAU, the group that governs sports outside of schools, who began to fund women's track and field teams the very next year. That paved the way for athletic superstars like Babe Diedrichsen and Stella Walsh in the 30s and 40s to rise to fame without the help of college programs. And the French scheme eventually worked. Six years after the meet in Paris, five track and field events for women were included in the Olympics in Amsterdam. But what should have been a no-brainer was a struggle. Instead of catapulting American women into the international sports arena, participating in the first international track meet for women was a small hop, step, and jump on the road to equal play. That's former Backstory producer Kelly Jones. We also heard from Jane Tuttle, a librarian at Columbia College in South Carolina. We're going to turn now to one of the most iconic images from American sports history. It's from the Summer Olympics of 1968, held in Mexico City. American runners Tommy Smith and John Carlos had just won the gold and bronze medals in the 200-meter race. As they stood on the victory stand and received their medals, they bowed their heads and each held one of their fists sheathed in a black glove up to the sky and what would at the time have been recognized as the symbol for black power. It was a moment of silent but powerful protest. The symbolism didn't stop there. Smith and Carlos came to the victory stand shoeless to represent the poverty afflicting black people in America. Smith wore a black scarf to represent black pride, and Carlos unzipped his tracksuit, revealing a necklace of beads that memorialized victims of lynching. And both men, as well as the white medalists from Australia, wore buttons for an organization called the Olympic Project for Human Rights. The organization had formed the previous fall, and they had originally favored an Olympic boycott by athletes. Their demands were that South Africa and Rhodesia be uninvited from the Games, that the heavyweight title that had been stripped from Muhammad Ali for refusing military service be restored, that the longtime president of the International Olympic Committee step down, and that more African-Americans be hired as assistant coaches. Harry Edwards had been a scholarship athlete with Tommy Smith at San Jose State. 
He returned there to teach in 1968, and he spearheaded the Olympic Project for Human Rights. I sat down with Edwards in 2014 and asked him about Smith and Carlos's famous act of protest on the victory stand. Well, the immediate results was uh, tremendous uh, booing, catcalls. There were a lot of uh, United States citizens at the games in Mexico City and easily accessible uh, uh, Olympic Games. And they took tremendous exception at the gesture by Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They were uh, banned from the Olympic Village and then uh, shipped out of Mexico a day and a half later by the uh, United States Olympic Committee. Once they got here, uh, the death threats and so forth began to roll in. I mean, it's very, very difficult to understand the kind of courage that it took for these two men to do what they did. And there was even some confusion in the African-American community about the appropriateness and so forth of what they did. Many African-Americans assumed that sport was this citadel of interracial harmony and brotherhood. And so when Smith and Carlos began to demonstrate and to protest not just what was going on uh, in society, but in sport itself, many black Americans did not understand. Of course, over the years, uh, as more and more discussion and so forth came on about how black athletes were often used and exploited to project and present one image while black people in this country were uh, living another type of experience, more and more black people came to understand that not only uh, was the gesture that Smith and Carlos uh, did at from the Olympic podium appropriate, It was absolutely necessary. I'm curious to know whether what Smith and Carlos did in 68 differed in any way from what other athletes had done before them. I think we have to understand that every generation of athletes protest within the context of their circumstances. At the turn of the 20th century, uh, African-American athletes received virtually no coverage, much less adulation and applause uh, for their athletic prowess in this country. Uh, They were in a constant struggle for legitimacy. And so it was the international arena uh, that this legitimacy typically was demonstrated, and that was a profound form of protest, whether it was Jesse Owens winning four gold medals in the 36 Olympics, Joe Lewis winning the heavyweight championship. In the immediate post-World War II era, the struggle was for access, fighting for desegregation, uh, becoming involved in a struggle for access. And of course, you saw Jackie Robinson uh, at the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers being really the face of that struggle for access. By the 1960s, the struggle was for dignity and respect and equity of outcomes uh, beyond the sports arena. So every generation struggle is different, and it's within the context of uh, the circumstances that they are confronted with. You know, there are prominent athletes today who say, we shouldn't be mixing sports and political protests, and we definitely shouldn't be mixing them in huge venues like the World Cup or the Olympics. In light of your own history, what would you say to those people? 
We thought the Olympics were a um, not just an appropriate but a preferable form because it is the second most political form outside of the United Nations itself in the international arena. Uh, also, uh, the Olympics had long been political, uh, not just going back to the Nazi Olympics of 1936, but going back to the racial Olympics uh, in St. Louis in 1904, where there was an effort to demonstrate white superiority over the non-white peoples of the world by literally cataloging scientifically the outcomes of races and so forth involving whites who competed against non-white people. So the games have long been political. George Foreman, who was the heavyweight boxing champion of the 1968 Olympics, walked around the ring waving an American flag, which was a totally political gesture. No one in the uh, United States Olympic Committee or in the International Olympic Movement uh, accused him of engaging in politics when it was crystal clear that that gesture was in response to Smith and Carlos. So celebratory politics is just fine. It's only the oppositional politics that draws the kind of attention and criticism that Smith and Carlos did. Absolutely. I mean, this notion that uh, somebody told me, well, Dr. Edwards, I understand uh, what you were trying to do, but we shouldn't expose our dirty laundry to the world. Well, every time someone was lynched, uh, it was on the front pages of newspapers all over the world. When Dr. King was shot, it was on the front pages of newspapers all over the world. That was airing our dirty laundry. Uh, and we weren't protesting America. We were protesting racism and discrimination in America and demonstrating that we have the freedom and the right to protest far right, which is what America was supposed to be about. They should have been proud to have that on the front pages of newspapers around the world, as opposed to the deaths of three civil rights workers trying to register black people to vote in Mississippi, or the uh, uh, pictures of a church that had been bombed where four little black girls were killed uh, while they were praying. They should have been proud to have Smith and Carlos on the front pages instead of that. That was the airing of our dirty laundry as a nation and as a society. Harry Edwards is an emeritus professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a consultant for the San Francisco 49ers, and he's written numerous books about African-American athletes, including The Revolt of the Black Athlete. We're talking today about the history of American athletics on the world stage, and we're going to turn now to another unexpected moment from that history. Teams from around the world had gathered in Nagoya, Japan for the 1971 World Table Tennis Finals. Table tennis, or ping pong, often evoked thoughts of basement rec rooms for Americans, but the sport was a big deal in Japan and China. Nevertheless, these championships were an unlikely setting for a major diplomatic breakthrough between two of the Cold War's biggest enemies. As Bruce Walsh reports, however, that's exactly what happened. If you've heard anything about the events in April of 1971 that became known as ping-pong diplomacy, you've probably heard about this. Matches were winding down for the day, and a U.S. player stumbled onto the Chinese team's bus, thinking it was going back to his hotel. 
There were a few tense moments, and then the American strikes up a conversation. His Chinese counterpart, the country's best player, hands him a gift, a silk screen with an image of the Huangshan Mountains. It's this wonderful moment where these two athletes, one uh, from communist China and an American hippie from California, uh, have this accidental meeting in the back of a bus, create this friendship, but that's just not the true version of the story. This is Nicholas Griffin, author of a book called Ping Pong Diplomacy. For the Chinese, this was a really methodical approach. The only person who didn't know what was going on was Glenn Cowan, the American hippie. Beijing had stage-managed the event. Mao had been building China's ping-pong team into a powerhouse. It became the vanguard of his soft-power approach to improving the country's image abroad. This was a very deliberate policy through the 1960s, so they would send the team out to countries they were interested in establishing foreign relations with, even before they had foreign relations. You could call them sort of sporting ambassadors. On the surface, relations between China and the U.S. in 1971 were as bad as they'd ever been since Mao came to power in 1949. But Nixon and Mao had both secretly started seeing the other as a way out. China with a U.S. ally could cool down a growing Soviet threat, and China might give the U.S. leverage in their stalled peace talks with the North Vietnamese. Of course, neither side could officially acknowledge this, unless, Mao and Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai reasoned, they could first manufacture a very public, very friendly, and very benign exchange between the two countries. Which brings us back to the bus in Japan. Glenn Cowan and his Chinese counterpart step down from it and are surrounded by a scrum of journalists. One asks Cowan if his team would be interested in visiting China. The long hair says sure, and two days later, they were headed to Beijing for some friendly matches. The Americans had no idea what was about to happen to them. One day they're in America, then they're in Japan for a few days for the tournament, and 48 hours later, they're the first American delegation to enter communist China. I mean, these guys know nothing about China. There's no reason they should. We flew to Hong Kong, we took the train to the border, and we walked across the border before we got on another train. Judy Bohinsky was, at 15, the youngest of the U.S. players. Walking across the border was like being in a movie. There was this really dramatic, patriotic music playing, and it just looked different, and everything smelled different, and it was just like something that I'd never seen before. The arena in Beijing was packed for their exhibition games with the Chinese, but the crowd was different than the ones Bohinsky was used to in the U.S. Here, it's just people are very individual. They scream, they yell, they clap at all different times. In China at that time, in 1971, it seemed like everything was in unison. Everybody clapped at the same time or stopped at the same time. Bohinsky won three of her four matches and says it was totally obvious that her opponent was letting her win. The team was also whisked around the country, walking on the Great Wall and petting water buffalo at a commune. Bohinsky says everywhere she went, she saw pictures of Mao and signs with different political slogans. There were some that were in English, and I remember one well because I have a picture of myself standing in front of this sign, and it said, people of the world, unite and defeat the U.S. aggressors and all their running dogs. And when we asked, so why do you have the sign? <laughs> and they would say, oh, well, they make a distinction between our government and our people. What Bohinsky and her teammates didn't see as they toured the country was how this trip was playing back home. The coverage it gets is extraordinary. Uh, on the first day that the American team is in China, 
there's not one, two, three, four. There are five articles in the New York Times, and none of them are in the sports section. They're carried on the front pages of every newspaper in the world. So the American team are catapulted to fame, but they're the only ones who don't know what's happening because, of course, they can't read any of this press because they're in communist China. As soon as we left China, we went out the same way we came in. We took a train to the border, walked across the border, got onto another train. And on this train, it was jam-packed full of reporters. And every square inch of that train was full. And you know, we were getting elbows in the face and cameras just right up in our face. And this global press attention is exactly what Mao and Nixon needed. The wonderful thing about this and why it worked so incredibly well is that it seemed utterly benign to Western press. I mean, it was ping pong, how preposterous. But what it does is it changes the way Americans think about the Chinese rapidly. News of happy American kids hanging out with their Chinese counterparts had been beamed around the world. A photo of Judy Bohinsky and Zhou Enlai shaking hands had been on the cover of newspapers everywhere. Maybe the Chinese weren't so scary after all. So what it does is it creates this enormous amount of maneuvering room for the politicians to carry out their desires, because ultimately Mao and Nixon had been thinking along very similar lines for just over a year until that point. What it needed was a catalyst, and ping pong was that catalyst. Three months later, Henry Kissinger flies to China for a secret meeting with Zhou Enlai. In early 1972, Nixon makes his trip to China. All because they decided to give ping pong a chance. That piece was reported by contributor Bruce Wallace. We also heard from U.S. ping pong player Judy Bohinsky and from writer Nicholas Griffin. He's the author of Ping Pong Diplomacy, the secret history behind the game that changed the world. You know, Brian, it's certainly the case that we're used to the arts playing a diplomatic role, and we're even used to the exchange of athletic teams of different levels helping knit countries together. But I can't really think of another instance in which a sport has played such a central diplomatic role as ping pong diplomacy did. You know, why do you think that this was the, um, the, the singular example of sport being used to really do the heavy lifting of international diplomacy? And I think that there are two reasons here. One is that the gap between the United States and the People's Republic of China politically simply seemed insurmountable. The Soviet Union, as you know, was our bitter enemy throughout the Cold War, but for the most part, we talked to the Soviet Union. We even negotiated settlements with them from time to time. We simply had no relationship with the People's Republic of China. There was nothing there. There was nothing to work with there. The second reason, I think, has to do with how little knowledge each society had about the other society. So, Something that's associated with regular people being at home in America's suburban life, like ping pong, was very effective for getting the people on each side of this great divide 
interested in each other, curious about each other. And of course, because each side knew nothing about each other, there was a great curiosity on both sides. You know, that's interesting, Brian, because it's certainly the case that the Americans and the Chinese not only did not know each other, what they did know about each other really led them to profoundly distrust each other. And sports are important, but sports are only a vehicle for other kinds of power. Well, that's right, Ed. But I also think we have this very strong belief that we can separate the two. You know, it's so common to hear, oh, we shouldn't pollute sports with politics. We got to keep politics out of sports. Well, as it turns out, Ed, it's hard to escape the long reach of politics. It, it pretty much penetrates most of what we do. And it's pretty hard to escape the long reach of sports, too. So it's not surprising <laughs> that they get entangled. I wouldn't argue about that, Ed. That's going to do it for today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Andrew Parsons, Kelly Jones, Emily Charnock, Bruce Wallace, and Nina Ernest. Our staff includes David Stenhouse, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Additional help came from Sam Olmschneider, Anjali Bishosh, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Pottington Bear, and Jazar. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. And a special welcome to Backstory's new senior producer, David Stenhouse. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.